Hi, good morning. My name's Phil, and I've got a reading for you now. This is from Mark's Gospel, and it's chapter 1 and verses 1 to 20, and uh, I'm reading from the NIV. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Thank you. Hello. Hello. I mean, he's just got here. So he's having, he's having a bit of a wobble. <laughs> it's working now. Can you believe that? Well, happy Easter, everybody. And uh, well, thank you to Liz and uh, for that wonderful poem about Barabbas. I'm going to be talking a little bit about Barabbas in a little while. But also thanks to Phil. And uh, I wonder if you noticed in that particular passage that he wrote, uh, read from uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, three times in that passage, the words good news are used. Good news about Jesus, God's good news, and believe the good news. And it's our prayer this morning that you today, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, might hear this good news about Jesus, recognize that it's God's good news for you and believe 
this good news because that's what really makes the difference. And we read how Jesus invited the early disciples to follow him and how they immediately left what they were doing and followed Jesus and went with him. This morning, we're going to give you an invitation, that same invitation, to follow Jesus. And so uh, we really pray that God will speak to you this morning. I bought a paper this morning, and I bought a paper deliberately because I know that most people are fed up of bad news. And I knew that if I bought a paper this morning, it would be several pages in when I got to read any good news whatsoever. And true enough, this morning, just randomly, the Sunday Telegraph, page 16 is the first page that you get to when there's any good news appear. It's all bad news. And there's just so much bad news around. Many people are wondering what's happened to the world. It used to be that maybe once, possibly twice a day, we'd turn on the TV and we could watch the news if we wanted to, or buy a newspaper and read it at our leisure. But nowadays, our phones, our iPads, our devices, they're all pinging and dinging and buzzing with 24-hour headlines of horrific events, well, repeated endlessly throughout the day, interrupting even our quietest moments. News and images that probably used to shock us and yet don't seem to anymore. It seems as though we've become desensitized by what we see and, and hear. Tragic plane crashes, terrorism, radicalization, corruption, crime. It goes on and on. It's a constant barrage. And our doctors are telling us that subjecting ourselves to this diet, this negative diet of 24-hour bad news is contributing to more and more people suffering from stress and depression. But it's not just a present-day phenomenon. In 1910, the Times newspaper asked a number of famous authors to write on the topic, What's Wrong with the World?, and one of those authors was G.K. Chesterton. And his answer was the shortest answer submitted. He simply wrote, Dear Sirs, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. His answer was short and yet so profound because he had hit the nail right on the head. Centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah had wrote, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. That's in Isaiah 53. Every single one of us is what is wrong with the world. We have a problem that we cannot put right. The Bible calls that problem sin. It manifests itself in all sorts of ways, including our own selfishness, lawlessness, and inhumanity to each other. In fact, to call it a problem is in no way describing the seriousness of the situation. Our sin is inherent. We can do nothing about it. The Bible says in Romans 8, we are powerless to do anything about it. And it's our sin that separates us from a loving God. 
We've fallen out of relationship with him. And sin has become this barrier between God and us. And we can do nothing about it. Our sin is the bad news. So, what's wrong with the world? I am. There's also quite a lot of silly news around. Our world is full of silly news, isn't it? Stuff that, when you hear it, you say to yourself, well, that can't be right. And it isn't right, but nonetheless, it happens. Here's a few examples, mostly from America, actually. Kathleen Robertson of Austin, Texas, was awarded $780,000 by an injury after breaking her ankle, tripping over a toddler who was running around inside the furniture store that she was in. The owners of the store were understandably surprised and dismayed at the verdict as the misbehaving little boy was Miss Robertson's own son. Terence Dixon of Bristol, Florida, was leaving a house after he'd just finished robbing it, robbing it. And he was trying to get out, out through the garage, but he was not able to escape as he couldn't get the garage door open because the locking mechanism was broken. He then found he couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and the garage had locked when he'd pulled it shut. The family of the house were away on holiday. So Mr. Dixon found himself locked in the garage for eight days. He survived on a case of Pepsi he had found there and a large bag of dry dog food. He successfully sued the homeowner's insurance company claiming the situation had caused him undue mental anguish. Another one, a Philadelphia restaurant was ordered to pay Amber Carson of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, $113,000 after she slipped on a soft drink and broke her coccyx. The beverage was on the floor because Miss Carson had threw it at her boyfriend seconds earlier during the argument. But here's the craziest, craziest news. A guy called Mr. Merv Grzynski of Oklahoma City. In November 2000, Mr. Grzynski purchased a huge motorhome, a Winnebago. And on his first trip home, having joined the freeway, he set the cruise control to 50 miles per hour and calmly left the driver's seat to go into the back to make himself a cup of coffee. Not surprisingly, the huge vehicle left the freeway and crashed through a nearby house. Mr. Grzynski successfully sued Winnebago for not advising him in the handbook that he couldn't actually do this. He was awarded over a million dollars and a new vehicle. Winnebago, the makers of the vehicle, actually changed their handbooks on the back of this court case, putting in it that you're not allowed to leave the driver's seat, just in case there was any other complete crackpots buying their vehicles. In fact, if you look at that picture again, and think about that story, it seems such a crazy thing to do, and yet, it seems to me that there are many people in our world living their lives in a very similar way. Many of us have clicked on the clues control of our lives took our eyes off the way ahead and become distracted with much lesser issues and things. You see, the Bible wisely encourages us 
not to store up treasure on earth. In this life, says Matthew 6, 90. Instead, store up treasure in heaven. In other words, live your life with the awareness of the eternal. This life is not the only thing. There is much more. To put it bluntly, the Bible says there is a heaven and there is a hell. And the fact that there is a part of us that is eternal, our spirit, and it's our spirit that will live on when our body dies and returns to the dust, that we can take none of the stuff, none of our earthly treasure with us when we die. So don't place your trust in that stuff. It rusts, it decays. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So what does it mean to trust in the Lord and not our own understanding? Well, here's the good news. This is good news. It's at this time of year that we are absolutely thrilled to declare this good news. We've just had a period called Lent. Lent is a special time for us to think about eternal issues. It's a time when people give up certain things. They focus their attention on more important things. Lent was never designed to be a time where people would simply give up chocolate or something similar to lose weight. Lent is not about losing physical weight. It's about losing spiritual weight, actually. I don't know if you've noticed that um, some people give up all kinds of physical things for Lent. We mentioned chocolate. Some people give up cake. Some people give up bread. Some people give up snacks. Some people try giving up TV. I've even read of people who have given up their shoes for Lent or maybe even their pillow to make it a little bit harder to sleep. Why that's a good thing, I'm not sure. But you never hear of anyone giving up sin for Lent. I wonder if that's actually possible anyway. You see, sin is something none of us can give up. And that's exactly the reason for Easter. It's a problem that keeps recurring in our lives. Easter is the pivotal point in the whole of time that enabled us, every one of us, to have access to the God of eternity. That's the good news That's why Good Friday, why it's referred to as good. You see, the Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, well, back to life, is the only way that we can have sin completely eradicated from our lives, so completely dealt with, forgiven, forgotten even, and our lives in eternity secured with him. Every single one of us is is bowed down and weighted down by our sin. And if it's not dealt with, it will crush us, every single one of us. And we will be sentenced to an eternity without God. That's why Lent is about losing our spiritual weight. And it all points back to that first Easter. I want you to take a look at this wonderful painting, actually. It's by a Swiss-born Italian called Antonio Cesare, and it was painted in 1871. It's in the Modern Art Gallery of Florence in Italy. And it's a title, it's entitled Ecce Homo in Latin, which means in English, behold the man. It depicts Pontius Pilate 
uh, as he's saying those words, as he shows Jesus, after Jesus has been flogged, after he'd been crowned with the crown of thorns, Pilate is trying to convince the people that Jesus has suffered enough and needn't be crucified. The use of the light and the shadow is amazing. Pilate's clothes are transparent and there's great contrast between the hot sun of the background and the cooling marble of the foreground. Because we can't see their faces, body posture is incredibly important. Pilate bends his body and puts his foot towards the crowd to get a closer look at them. Arms pointing to the man of sorrows as if saying, isn't this enough? Christ's body posture is completely different. He looks down, he's motionless, he's patiently suffering. And we can see the faces of the crowd if you look through the, the, the fence there. They're shouting, crucify him. On the other hand, Pilate's wife is being steadied by another woman. She can't even bear to look at what's happening. Before this all began, she told her husband not to harm Jesus because she had had a dream about him. And the, patient, uh, the painting shows these different opposite reactions of the people that were involved in that story. And the, the, Jesus' disciples weren't there. The crowd's reaction was of one of excitement and cruelty. At best, they were just going along with the flow, with what the majority wanted. I suggest to you that they were not thinking about eternity at this point. They were being controlled by something else. You might say their cruise control was on. Pilate's wife's reaction was sadness and compassion. Jesus stood there, an innocent man. If you know the story of Pontius Pilate, he comes up with a plan that he thinks will get him out of this awkward situation and not condemning this innocent man to death. He comes up with this plan to offer the crowd a choice. Free Jesus or free a notorious criminal called Barabbas. Pilate is sure that the crowd would not want such a dangerous man set free amongst them. And so he comes up with this, this deal, if you like. Do I free Jesus or do I free Barabbas? Now, Barabbas was imprisoned in the cells beneath the governor's palace. And he was a notorious criminal, a sinful person, condemned to death. He was rightfully deserving that, that death penalty. And he was just expecting it and waiting for it. And I want you to think of the scene a little bit like Liz's poem earlier that Julia read. Pilate is addressing the crowd and he's, he's on that balcony and he's, he's shouting out to the crowd, but he's just one voice. The crowd are hundreds of people. So when they're shouting back, obviously their voice is even louder. And Barabbas, he's incarcerated deep, deep below in the bowels of the, the palace. Maybe he can hear the crowd, but I'm pretty sure and I'm using my preacher's license here, perhaps he can't hear the single voice of Pilate. And I want you to imagine that he's unable to do that, but he can hear the crowd shouting in unison. In Matthew 27, we read a little passage that shows this interaction that's going on between Pilate and the crowd. 
And I want you to get involved in this. Maybe you at home, as, uh, as you're looking at that slide, in red is your, your words. And I want you to not just say them, I want you to believe that you're the crowd and you shout them out. And I'm going to get everybody that's here, the musicians, to shout out their part in this crowd. And I'll read the, the, uh, the white words and I'll be the narrator. But when it gets to the red ones, I want you to be the, the, the Bane crowd. Okay, so here it goes. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, that's good. I can hear you all at home as well. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather than a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See, see to that yourselves. And all the people said, Yeah, nobody, nobody likes saying that. What they're saying is, well, blame us then. Blame us. We'll take the responsibility for this. Imagine what was going on there. But imagine what was going on in Barabbas's head. Barabbas could only hear the words of the crowd. So all he heard in that little interaction was Barabbas, crucify him. A second time, all the more, crucify him. And then the crowd saying again, we'll take the responsibility. Let his blood be on us. Imagine what was going on in Barabbas' mind. He'd been locked in that cell, filthy cell, dark, cold, damp. This was it. He knew he was sentenced to death, but this was it. And suddenly he heard the jailer's keys in the door of that cell. The key turned and the light flooded in to that cell. And the Romans said, come on, out of there. And they probably were quite rough with him, but they dragged him out of the cell. And once he was out and his, his eyes got used to the light again, he was looking to them to lead him somewhere to perhaps, you know, the crucifix, to crucifixion or something like that. And yet, they let him go. They let him go. And you can imagine just as, just as Liz wrote in that point, bewildered, Barabbas is now free and he's walking and nobody's following him. The guards aren't following him. He's free. And I wonder what that must have felt like. One moment expecting to die. Next moment, total freedom. I wonder where he went. We don't actually know. We don't actually know the rest of the story of Barabbas. But interestingly, we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus is sentenced to death on a cross. We know that he's made to carry his cross up Golgotha. We know that he's crucified alongside two criminals similar to Barabbas. Maybe, maybe Barabbas hung around. Maybe Barabbas witnessed and maybe he thought to himself, I should be hanging there. My sin, my wrongdoing, deserved death. Not this guy who's an innocent man. 
Jesus was dying for Barabbas. But the Bible says we're all Barabbas. As G.K. Chesterton said, I am the problem. We are the problem. Sin is inherent in us. And sin needs dealing with. And that's how Jesus dealt with our sin. He died on the cross for every single one of us. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He died for Barabbas' sin. We are Barabbas. Romans 5 verse 6 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Isaiah wrote that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died for you and me. Died that we might be forgiven. Died that we might have eternal life. Died that we might have a relationship with God the Father now. Died so that our eternity could be sure. This is the good news. This is the good news of Easter. And the brilliant news is Jesus didn't stay dead. He proved that he was more than a man that he was God because he was raised back to life. His resurrection on that first Easter was, was witnessed by so many people, over 500 people, the Bible says. Now, one or two could make a story up, but 500? That's really good news. And Jesus said to his disciples, come, follow me. And that's exactly his invitation this morning. Come, follow me me. Will you follow Jesus? Will you acknowledge that he died for your sin, the sin that you are helpless to eradicate in your life? And will you accept Jesus' invitation to come and follow him?